You're listening to audio from Ascend Church. For more information about Ascend or to access more gospel-centered tools to grow as a disciple of Christ, visit ascendkc.org. Let's turn to Mark chapter 10. If you don't have a Bible, grab one of the Bibles we have for you in the seats in front of you, and you can find Mark chapter 10 in the passage that we will be studying on page 846. I want to go ahead and start reading because we have a lot to cover, and I hope that you will find it both interesting as well as educational, and that it will impact the way that you think, speak, and live. Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 13. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the little children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them into his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him and loving him, said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at these words. But Jesus said to them again, for a How, children, how difficult it is for anyone to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God it is not. For all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Perhaps familiar passages and accounts if you've grown up in the church or you've studied the Bible. As I read these and studied them, I think that the focus that Jesus is drawing the crowds and the disciples and this young ruler toward is a dependence that is required to enter the kingdom of God. 
Dependence is something that we all experience, and I think it's most wonderfully and vividly illustrated by the dependence of children on parents and parents on children. I mean, just think through when kids are dropped off for the first time in kids' ministry here at Ascend, there is a dependence that is illustrated in the tears, in the screams, and in the desperation for the children to get to the parents. There's dependence that is modeled as kids grow up and parents attempt to teach their kids how to ride their bikes. There's dependence on the parents as young teenagers attempt to learn how to drive for the first time. There is dependence that I have heard that some teenagers will express, because my kids would never do this, dad, can I have some money because I'm going out with my friends. There's a dependence in parenting as we look at parents with their children. But there's also dependence with parents of their children. In fact, oftentimes what you see is especially the moms who as they leave their children, they're like Lot's wife with Sodom and Gomorrah, like, no. (laughs) Parents love seeing their kids' expressions when they pick out their parents' face in a crowd. They also express their dependence on their kids, oftentimes with academic or athletic performance, and I'll stop right there, because it reminds us that not all dependences are good dependences. And so what this passage is going to show us most vividly, and I pray most helpfully, is that to enter the kingdom of God, it requires a gospel dependence. Do you see that in your notes? This is the big idea. This is what these stories are focusing on. This is what I hope is your takeaway, that to enter the kingdom of God, it requires a gospel dependence. So this is your opportunity to engage with this study and to walk away being able to answer, are you headed toward the kingdom of God? The first way you can evaluate this is to evaluate your dependence. Number one, are you completely dependent? Are you completely dependent? Verse 13 gives us the scene. So Jesus is about to teach, and the crowds are gathered, and the disciples are basically the gatekeepers. By this time in the Gospel of Mark, the 12 disciples would spread out amongst the crowd, and they would evaluate who was present. And if we are following the Gospel of Mark, we know that in crowds, there are usually people who need to be healed. There are usually people that are demon-possessed. There are usually religious leaders or other people that want to ask theological questions of Jesus. There are cynics, there are critics, and there are those who genuinely are interested in following him. And so the role of the disciples by this point was to make sure that they scanned the crowd to make sure that Jesus had access or that people had access to the master that was most efficient. And so the vocabulary in the text, kind of lost in the English but vivid in the Greek, communicates to us what the scene was. It says, do you see it in the English? It says, they were bringing This is a a word in the original that denotes repetition. So the idea that we can have is that there was lines forming that had this intense purpose. Look what it says in the text. They were bringing to him children. In the original, this is a description of children who would have been anywhere from birth to under puberty. Most likely that they were parents and older siblings that were bringing these children to Jesus, what does the text say? So that he may touch them. 
Now, up to this point, any time that Jesus touched somebody, it was usually in conjunction with healing. But as we see this passage unfold, and as we reflect on the rest of the Bible, we know that these people wanted Jesus to bless these children. In fact, you can write down Genesis 48. Look at it later. Joseph brought Ephraim and Manasseh to Jacob for the purpose of him touching them and giving them a blessing. And so this is the scene. This is what the disciples see. And and as they look at this, they make a judgment that this is not good. And remember, we talked about this a couple weeks ago, that in the ancient Jewish culture, that children were actually honor deterrents. And in an honor-based society, to associate yourself with children was not good for your movement. It was not good for your honor status. And so the disciples saw this. Look at what it says. They rebuked the people. Now, at this point, we have an opportunity to see how will Jesus respond. Now, most of us think of Jesus in the buddy Christ concept. Like, Jesus is our friend. Jesus is compassionate. Jesus is merciful. Jesus is meek. And he's all of those things, but not at the expense of the other side of Jesus that we see given in verse 14. When Jesus saw it, it says he was indignant. You hear how I did that with my voice? He was indignant. It's supposed to communicate what this word actually means. It means to be angry or frustrated because you judge something to be wrong. And Jesus then begins to give a teaching opportunity by taking the horizontal reality and teaching a vertical truth. Look at what it says in verse 14. Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them. Why? This was a horizontal reality, but he's teaching a vertical truth. And he says, because to, for, to such belongs the kingdom of God. Now, what is Jesus saying here? Is Jesus saying that children are the only ones who can be saved? Well, of course the answer is no. What about the thief on the cross? But what it is showing is something that we can even observe in our society. Do you know that studies show that if somebody is going to be saved, it usually, in fact, 19 times out of 20, happens before the age of 25? Isn't that fascinating? And so, beloved, let me just pause right here and say that if you want to be a missionary, an evangelist, if you want to have the greatest opportunity, statistically speaking, to contribute to somebody's conversion, engage in students, young adults, and kids' ministry here at Ascend. And you may say, well, I don't think I have the gift of teaching. That's okay. Others do. If you will just engage, help in the classroom, Help make copies during the week. Come and help Ken and Mindy and their leadership team. Just make sure that things are under control on Sunday night. They always are, but they could always use more help. Young adults that meets on Wednesday night, it's an opportunity in the most transitional time of somebody's life between 18 and 25. Just come and build relationships and help because, beloved, statistics show that between the ages of 0 to 25 is the greatest opportunity for people to get saved. But praise God, it's not limited to that. Amen? But he says, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. And here's the point that he's trying to make. Verse 15, truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. 
Friends, the greatest question you can ask yourself and your greatest identity as a result of that question is, are you citizens of the kingdom? Who cares what your banker account says? Who cares what your political affiliation is? Who cares what your relational status is? That is not your primary identity. Your primary identity is, where are you a citizen? The world or the kingdom of God? And he says, if you want to be a citizen of the kingdom of God, you must receive the kingdom as a child. The illustration I can give you is before I was in ministry, I was an IT director, and I I built computers, I built servers, I built networks, I did patch panels, I did PBX phone systems. I've forgotten so much of that, but the point that I'm trying to make is that it didn't all start there. My journey with computers actually began with Gateway 2000. Some of you are old enough to remember. Remember the cow stores that you could go to? And so I had a laptop, therefore that made me an expert, or at least I thought. So my father-in-law had an issue with his computer. He wanted to upgrade from Windows 98 to Windows ME, the greatest Windows operating system in the history of the world. And so I said, I got this. I've got my Gateway 2000. So, so I rolled into his office and, and started the, the install, and everything was going great until the blue screen of death. <laughs> warning, warning, and I'm like, the cow didn't tell me what to do now. <laughs> and what I found out is I had corrupted his hard drive, and years of data for his business were now gone. Yeah, I used to have hair. So what did I do? Well, I called the expert that I knew in a church that we were attending, and he came out, and I watched what he did, and he opened the box, and he popped out the hard drive, and he put in a new one, and he installed the operating system. But while I watched him, I learned. And I learned about motherboards, and I learned about where the video card goes. That's the most important component to a computer. I learned about where the the network cards and the hard drives and how you can stack different ones on top of each other. And I realized as I came away from there, okay, now I know what I need to build my own computer. So I went out to Newegg and I ordered all the parts and it all arrived and I threw the instructions away (laughs) because I got this. And I started building that thing, but then I saw that, ooh, there's cables I don't recognize. There's these little plastic things called jumpers, and it's important which pin those goes on. And so I got it all put together, and I got the box, and I'm like, push the power button. And I pushed the power button, (laughs) and I pounded the power button. Nothing happened. So I had to call the expert, and he came over, showed me what I did wrong, showed me where the cables were supposed to go. And that has been the story of my technology IT world, is constantly dealing with pride, thinking I've got this, and then realizing, no, 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 the instructions are important, the expert is crucial, and I've got to, in an IT world, be dependent. And friends, what Jesus is saying in verse 15 is that people approach relationship with God often in a way that is not like a child. It's like an adult who thinks they've got this. They think that they can have Jesus plus something else. They think that they can have Jesus plus religion, Jesus plus their own opinions, and that somehow they can get through life in relationship with God without being like a child who is completely dependent. And all you have to do is look at children before puberty especially, because once they become teens and they're like, no, 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 I got this. But watch those little children and see how dependent they are on their parents. That's what Jesus is saying. 
And beloved, let me give you just three reminders of how you can be like a child and have access to the kingdom. Number one, repent and believe. Number one, repent and believe. What repentance means is that you agree with what the Bible says about your sin nature. You agree that you cannot do anything good that God will accept. Agree that except from the righteousness of Christ, your sins cannot be forgiven. Repent and believe and be all in. Cast yourselves at the foot of the cross. Friend, if you've not done that, would you do that today? I'm begging you. I'm pleading you. There's nothing that the kingdom of this earth can offer you. No treasures, no riches, no status that comes anywhere close to what the kingdom of God offers. You must be completely dependent in your conversion. But then second of all, you must be completely dependent as you grow. Jesus reminded the disciples in Mark chapter 8, verses 17 through 21, that they just didn't get it yet. They must continue to study. They must continue to understand. They must continue to be in discipleship relationships. They must continue to grow and be completely dependent on God for that growth. And so my question to you is, Christian, are you completely dependent in your growth? And then number three, you must completely stay dependent. Remember at the end of Mark chapter 9, when we get down to verse 29, Jesus' disciples were not able to cast out a demon. And Jesus says, with this one, can only be cast out by prayer. What Jesus was saying is that there's not this prayer formula. He wasn't saying you just didn't have enough prayer. He wasn't saying you just didn't know the right incantations. What he was saying is the only way this demon can be cast out is by an active, complete faith. And the disciples didn't have it. So how can you tell, beloved, in your life right now if you have a complete dependence like a child? First of all, ask yourself, do you have religion or relationship? Do you have religion or relationship? Jesus, for many people who have religion, is a phone a friend. You know what that is? Like, I don't know if they even have this show on anymore. Who wants to be a millionaire? By now it's like millionaire. What's the big deal about that? But that show was in order to be able to get the right answer, sometimes you were stuck. And so you could phone a friend that you consider to be your expert. And many people consider Jesus and Christianity and religion as phone a friend. I wait until life is falling apart. I, I wait until I'm desperate. Or you might even consider what you're doing right now this morning as a religious activity, meaning you've had six days where things haven't really gone that great spiritually. I'm going to come here and check that box. Oh, beloved, Jesus does not want a religion. He wants a relationship. You are completely dependent on him. Number two, how much... Is Christ on your mind this past week? How much has Christ been on your mind this past week? Friends, we have a lot of things on our mind. A lot of things are competing for our attention. We have sports. We have entertainment. We have technology. We have clothes. We have trends. We have social media. We have news. There are a lot of things competing for our attention. We have work. We have school. But my question to you is, how much has Christ, not just religion, not just faith, how much has Christ been on your mind this past week? Some of the ways you can evaluate that is, how much have you studied his word? 
How much time have you spent in prayer, intentional prayer, not just praying the Lord's Prayer, not just praying thank you for this food? How much of time have you spent in prayer? How much time have you spent in intentional, active relationships with brothers and sisters in Christ? How much has Christ been on your mind this past week? That will tell you whether or not you're completely dependent. Number three, ask yourself this. Do you have a sensitive and courageous conscience? And one of the ways you can evaluate that is when you're criticized, how do you respond? One of the ways you can evaluate that is when things don't go your way, how do you respond? And friends, these are just three. There are many that we could drill down even further into, but the question that Jesus offers to us through this account is, are you completely dependent? Verse 16, he took them up in his arms. It was an expression of affection, and he blessed them, laying his hands on them. Are you completely dependent like a child? That is gospel dependence that gives you access to the kingdom. Number two. Are you codependent? Are you codependent? This is a very misunderstood paragraph. Before we get into the details, let me show you a phrase. This is for all of you Bible nerds and geeks like I am. Look at verse 17. And as he was setting out on his journey, awesome. Most of you are like, what's the big deal about that? Well, in the original, this is a very unique structure that would have drawn the reader's attention to the journey. Okay, think about that. Caesarea Philippi to Judea beyond the Jordan. Across the Jordan from Perea is the capital city of Israel, which was where? Jerusalem. What's going to happen to Jesus when he gets to Jerusalem? The cross. And see, what Mark was doing by using this phrase is drawing the reader's attention who already knows the rest of the story. The the, the people to whom Mark was writing, they knew the rest of the story. And so he draws their attention. Remember, there's a journey here in the progression of the map. He's getting close to Jerusalem. What's going to happen at Jerusalem? The king of kings is going to give up his life. And what a contrast that's going to be to what we're going to read. There was a man who ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? There's a lot of different opinions about this passage. Many think that this man was arrogant. Many think that the issue that Jesus called out was that he was extremely wealthy. Others think that what this tells us is that Jesus expects his followers to be minimalist, but none of those are the point of the text. The man says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Look at the phrase, inherit. That was what Ben has been drawing our attention to, is that the concept of inheritance is very important to God's people. Inheritance can be important to us today. We we can understand that. I've got friends who have an inheritance coming down the pipe someday where their needs, possessions, and horizontally speaking, will be completely taken care of, and it affects the way they make decisions today. So inheritance, we can understand, but for a Jew, that was very important because they knew they had the inheritance of Abraham. And so the man is coming and using a term that was very familiar to him, but also, too, if you go down to verse 22, he's a very wealthy man. 
So the concept of inheritance, the concept of possessions and horizontal wealth was very familiar to him. And he comes to Jesus and says, listen, I have wealth and I'm a Jew, but I'm still missing something. And friends, that's the beginning of the path to the gospel. It's getting to a place in your life where you acknowledge that no matter what you have, no matter what's going well for you, we're all missing something. And he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Listen, friends, he is focused on assurance of eternity. Maybe some of you are here this morning, and that is an important question to you, and you don't have the assurance. He's going to unpack how you can get it. It's interesting. Jesus responds to him, focusing on the description of Jesus. He says, why do you call me good? See, what Jesus was exposing in that answer is he actually is exposing that the man was focused on how good do I personally have to be to be sure that I have eternal life. And friends, listen, that is religion. Every religion in the world asks that question except biblical Christianity. Every religion in the world is trying to pursue some sort of activity that will check the box of good bold enough that they can be assured that they will be in heaven for eternity. But biblical Christianity doesn't say that. Biblical Christianity says, how good has Christ been and how can I receive his goodness? And so Jesus essentially begins that planting of the seed by saying, why do you call me good? Because there's no one who's good except for God alone making a point about his own deity, but then he plays the game. Look at verse 19. You know the commandments. And what's fascinating about this is that Jesus picks the half of the 10 commandments that are focused on people-to-people interaction, and he skips the God-to-people, or people-to-God. I think this is interesting because Jesus takes a different approach than we often do with the gospel, doesn't he? Don't you like to have the ball set on the tee? Let me illustrate that. I love the movie You've Got Mail. Doc will hopefully be watching that over Thanksgiving. And it's Tom Hanks and and Meg Ryan, and and they're both uh, two individuals who meet each other in an AOL chat. And so they start to really be intrigued with each other, and they they start to hit it off well, but they decide early on in their communication, we're not going to share any details, but, but Meg Ryan owns a little bookstore, and Joe Fox... Tom Hanks has Fox bookstores, like the Barnes and Noble. And so, of course, the Barnes and Noble is going to put Little Shop around the corner out of business. And so she lets the cat out of the bag that her business is struggling. And Joe Fox is like, I'm a brilliant businessman. It's what I do best. And he immediately moves into fix-it mode. And he creates more problem than he creates And friends, that's often what we do when it comes to the gospel. That's often what we do in life is we look to fix it. We look to the quick answer. We look to the quick solution. But Jesus does not do that. And by giving these commandments, he actually uses one phrase that turns everything, but the man missed it. Look at what it says in verse 20. The man says, teacher, all these things I've kept from my childhood. He's not being arrogant. He's actually saying, you can ask my parents. You can ask my colleagues. I have had a pattern of obedience, and he's feeling good about himself. 
But what Jesus has done is he's actually focused on the man's situation, and I'll show you more in more detail in a quote that we'll have the team put up on the screen in just a moment. But Jesus says one command before the honor of your father and mother. He says, do not defraud. Do you see it? And that is different than the Exodus 20 passage that says, do not covet. The reason Jesus does that is because for a man who's extremely wealthy, covetousness is not often something that he deals with. Because if I see somebody has something better than I do, I go what? Buy it. What he's saying here is do not defraud because that's something that wealthy people often struggle with. Deceiving. Taking advantage. Or listen to this phrase, compromise to maintain. In fact, would you write that down, please? Because, friends, all of us as Americans fall into the category of wealthy. And we have to be careful that we do not, with our wealth, succumb to the temptation to compromise, to attain and maintain. We'll get to more detail about what that actually means in just a moment. But Jesus, look at verse 21, looks at him. The word is, describes looking at somebody intently. And it says that he loved him. The word agape, the ultimate love that a person can have for another human. His response, we can anticipate how it would have been received by this young man. He says, you lack one thing. In the original, it means you are missing one thing that is essential. And so the young man realizes, hey, this is important. What, what, what the rabbi is about to say is very important. So if I want to have assurance of my eternal life, then I am lacking one thing. What is it, Jesus? And he says, go. Okay, I can do that. Sell everything that you own and give it to the poor. Now, I think that's all the, the man heard because look at verse 22. The word is translated disheartened, but it means to be shocked. To be surprised at what you see or hear. It says in verse 22 that he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions, but he had something clouding his ears that kept him from seeing the ultimate treasure. I want to argue, I want to show you that from the text. Look at verse 21. He says, Go and sell. The word sell in the original language means to dispose in exchange for value. In fact, would you write that down, please? To sell means to dispose, to get rid of something in exchange for value. Whenever you sell something, you very rarely sell something to receive something of less value. I mean, even garage sales, the the nickel bin. We put a nickel on there because otherwise we would throw it out. But the point that Jesus is making here is sell all of the things that you treasure and that you value in exchange for something of greater value. And what is the greater value? Look at verse 21. Treasure in heaven. The word treasure means value that is kept safe. Friends, that's not something that in our society we have a whole lot of experience with, do we? Banks, Mutual funds, stock market, there's always risk. In fact, I I had a guy that I work out at a gym in our neighborhood, and it's just in the basement, it's little workouts, but you know, the older you get, the more you have to spend 
not becoming. But this guy, he, he comes down very rarely, but when he does, it's always the same thing. He comes down, he's loud. I like my personal space. I like quiet. And he flips on the TV, cranks up the volume, and he turns it to Fox News. And he's just constantly walking the ticker down at the bottom. And he'll make these like, you know the, those, that guy that makes a comment, even though nobody else is interested, but he just wants to share with you? He'll be like, stocks are up today. Stocks are up today. I'm like, stocks are down today. Stocks are down today. Okay. What Jesus is saying here is that there's something more secure than stocks, more secure than bonds, more secure than Bitcoin. He's saying what is absolutely safe is the treasure that you will have in heaven when you are citizen of the kingdom. And what is the access to that? He says, give it to the poor and come and follow me. Let me ask the team to put a quote up on the screen. The point that Jesus is making is that Jesus is probing at the role possessions play in the man's life and inviting him to cut them off. That's the point of this. It's not sell everything, Christian. Give it to the poor, Christian. It is with this specific man. He is drilling down to the context that he's been unpacking throughout chapter 9. As he's probing and saying, what role does wealth play in your life and you might need to cut it off. Remember back in chapter 9, verses 42 through 50, Jesus said, if anything causes you to sin, cut it off. Remember, if your eye, pluck it out. If your hand, cut it off. If your foot, cut it off. And remember, we said it's very important for us to understand what it means to cause something to sin. I'll ask the team to put a quote up on the screen to remind us that causing you to sin is anything that hinders progress toward Christ, including what we may consider essential. That's why it's the foot, the eye, and the hand analogy. That's why he's probing with this man something that the man thought was essential, that if it is hindering your progress toward Christ, then you need to cut it off, even if you consider it essential. And he's focusing with this man on the topic of wealth. Here's another quote the blessing of wealth becomes a curse when it becomes an obstacle to a right relationship with God friends let that be a reminder to each one of us doesn't matter whether you have a 401k doesn't matter whether you have multiple homes doesn't matter whether you're hardly making ends meet we are all wealthy And friends, let this just remind us that there is a blessing of wealth, but it becomes a curse when it hinders us from progressing to be like Christ. Jesus is exposing this in the man's life, and he's using something specific in his life to expose the role that wealth has played in his life, and he's exposing it and giving him an opportunity to respond. So friends, while we might not be able to relate to the details of this rich young ruler, let me give you five ways we can evaluate in our own lives whether or not we are codependent, Jesus plus wealth. Number one, what role does the glory of Christ play in your financial decisions? What role does the glory of Christ play in your financial decisions? Remember, 1 Corinthians 10.31, do all to the glory of God. 
But see, oftentimes we have horizontal filters that are our primary concern when it comes to financial decisions. What will make my life easier? What will make my life comfortable? What are the decisions I can make that allow me to provide for my kids in a way my parents didn't provide for me? And that becomes our primary filter in our financial decisions. If that's the case, beloved, then you are exposing that you're codependent. Number two, what role does generosity play in the hierarchy of your decisions? What role does generosity play in the hierarchy of your decisions? As you make decisions about your job, as you make decisions about your spending, as you make decisions about your subscription services, do you ever consider, will this keep me from being able to be generous toward others in need? If that's the case, and you don't consider generosity at all, you are probably codependent on wealth. Number three, whether you're married or not, but especially in our community, if this is applicable and this is especially probing, what are the filters that you use for who will work, where they will work, and when they will work? What are the filters that you use for who will work, where they will work, when they will work, how much they will work. We, we live in a community where there are a lot of dual incomes. We, we have a church where there are a lot of dual income families. And listen, at its core, that is not in and of itself sin. However, if the decisions that you're making are primarily financial, primarily standard of life before, does this free me up to bring glory to Christ by fulfilling my responsibilities, then you are likely codependent. There are a lot of executives in this room. Usually executives require a lot of travel, a lot of late nights, a lot of extra work during the week. And my question to you is, why are you doing that? If your primary answer is because of a standard of living, because of what you can provide for your kids, because of keeping up with the Joneses, or anything that is less than, because this frees me up to bring glory to Christ because of my priorities that he says I should have, to bring glory to Christ by making sure that I can invest in my walk with Christ. If it is anything secondary to that, if it is anything that prioritizes something over that, then you are likely exposing that you are codependent. Number four. How important are brands, features, and new? If those things are so important to you that you have to spend and you can't tithe, you don't have enough to be able to provide for your kids as the Bible says that you should provide for them, not as Johnson County says. Your kids don't have to have the best brands. Your kids don't have to have the newest if all of your priorities are in the right place and you have the ability to do that, praise God for that. But if your priorities are new and brands and features, you might be expressing that you're codependent. Number five, how do the decisions in the horizontal and with wealth impact your involvement in the body of Christ? The business trips, the vacations, does it keep it from being possible for you to be actively and consistently involved in the body of Christ? 
or the activities that you have your kids involved with keep you from being able to put them into ministries where they are getting the gospel planted and watered in their lives. Beloved, if that is the case, then you might be expressing just like this religious ruler that you are codependent. The Bible doesn't give all the details that your family needs to be able to know exactly what you should do in your situation, but it does give you the framework. And I think what happens in our lives is that as we start to ask these difficult questions and we start to see the answers, what it exposes is that even though we thought we were completely dependent, we are actually codependent. And what Jesus is showing this young ruler is that codependency is not gospel dependency. And the man responds disheartened and he's sorrowful. Why? Because he wants to continue to live a life of codependence, religion plus wealth. Friends, as you walk away from this point and we address the final paragraph that we're going to study, please, Johnson Countyites, please, wealthy Americans, join with me in evaluating our life to see are we codependent or are we all in and prioritizing the gospel, prioritizing the glory of Jesus Christ, prioritizing the commission that he gave us to make disciples. As long as those things are a priority in our lives, then enjoy the wealth that God has given you. But let's not be codependent. Number three, are you correctly dependent? Are you correctly dependent? Verse 23, Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, and man, does he drop a bomb. How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Now, for the ancient context, they they, they believed that if you had wealth, you had favor from God. If you had wealth, that meant that God viewed you as a a life of obedience. Think of Job. The whole book of Job is Job and his friends struggling with, wait, Job had favor, that must mean he was obedient. Then he doesn't have favor, that must mean that he's disobedient. That was the context here. And so what Jesus says is earth-shattering to the disciples. Somebody who is wealthy may actually not be able to enter the kingdom of God. In fact, Percentage-wise, it is most likely the majority of the wealthy will not enter the kingdom of God. And look at what the disciples say. They were amazed at his words. What? Jesus doesn't clarify. He actually doubles down. Verse 24, he says to them again, children, but look at what he says, how difficult it is just to enter the kingdom of God. Friends, listen, the gospel is simple, but it's not easy. And if we are frustrated because we presented the gospel in such a brilliant and clear fashion and the person doesn't respond, it's because the gospel is impossible apart from the work of God. The disciples' minds are blown, and then Jesus uses an analogy. There's been a lot of ink spilled and a lot of trees murdered. Just kidding. He says it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And people have said, well, there's a gate in Jerusalem. As best as we can tell, what Jesus was using here is a rabbinical analogy. And so we actually see outside of Israel, the rabbis would, it's kind of like what you might say in the south. It's like a, a fly on molasses. And so what they would say outside of Israel is they would look for the largest land animal and they would say it's easier for an elephant to go through the eye of the needle. 
And people would say, okay, that, that means that this is impossible. In Israel, the largest land animal was a camel. And so here Jesus says, it's difficult, more difficult. It's, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples get it. They were exceedingly astonished. And they said to him, then who can be saved? And what Jesus does here is he actually walks through three ways we can correct our lenses of dependence to ensure that we have access to the kingdom of God. The first one is with salvation. Make sure that you correct your lenses of dependence with the topic of salvation, meaning that it is impossible with man. We cannot will ourselves into heaven. In fact, the Bible says even the faith that is required for salvation is a gift of God. The Bible says that even the repentance that is required for salvation is the gift of God. Jesus says in John 6, no man can come to the Father unless, no man can come to Christ unless the Father draws him. We are completely dependent on God. It is impossible with man to be saved, but with God, all things are possible. So continue to evangelize, continue to pray, because if it's on God's radar, and if it is God's purpose and his predestined plan, no matter how sinful somebody is, no matter how many times they reject the gospel, no matter how old they are, they will be saved. That's awesome. So brothers and sisters, pray for your family that you're going to see at Thanksgiving. Share the gospel when you have an opportunity. Use the tools that God says he uses in people's lives because with man it is impossible, but with God all things are impossible. We need to correct our dependence. But second of all, we need to correct our dependence with the expectations of discipleship. The expectations of discipleship. I love that Ben said if we were to summarize what we are about as a church in one word, it's discipleship. So you want to understand what it means to be a disciple. You want to understand what the expectations are for being a disciple. Look at what Peter says. Peter says in verse 28, Sir, see, we have left everything and followed you. The word left everything actually means to put things in their proper place. That's important. Because guess what? Best as we can tell, Peter still had a house. He still had a boat. He was still married. He still had kids. We'll ask the team to put a quote up on the screen. Giving up all means sacrificing those things that represent a roadblock to authentic faith and trust in God. Jesus is not encouraging disciples to just give up everything, sell everything, unless it's a roadblock to authentic faith and trust in God. And Peter is reminding us by the very words that he uses in his question that being a true disciple of Christ means putting things in their proper place and putting Christ and our pursuing of him as the priority. Which brings us to number three. We need to correct our expectations of the satisfaction of what is offered under the sun. We need to correct ourselves with the proper expectations of what is offered for the satisfaction of things under the sun. Verse 29, these have been very much misunderstood. Truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left put things in the proper place, house and brothers or sisters or mother and father or children or lands, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time. Most people read it like that. And what they're expecting is that what Jesus is saying is that, listen, if you will sacrifice a little for the Lord, he will give you a lot. 
And that's not the point that Jesus is making here. And I would communicate that by having us focus on two sections of this phrase. Look at what it says. That if you have left these things for my sake and for the gospel, would you circle that? And then would you also circle the phrase, with persecutions? I think I mentioned a couple weeks ago, I, I love technology. I was studying about sound bars because my sound bar was crackling and it was dropping out. And so I was researching it and I found the one that I wanted. It's amazing. Was able to cover my old one with warranty. Was able to get the new one. And listen, it's awesome. But it's also frustrating because you know what? When you get new technology, you need new cables. There's different settings that maybe your TV doesn't have. Maybe it doesn't deliver exactly the sound that you would think, so you have to get into the settings and be like, oh, does bass need to go up, treble needs to go down? And that little exercise was such a reminder that the things of this world are enjoyable, but they were never intended to satisfy. Friend, when you go to Thanksgiving with your family this week, when you spend time with your family during the Christmas holidays, remember they were never intended to satisfy. The reaction of the gift that you give to somebody, that you'll spend a month longing to see their reaction, it will never deliver the satisfaction you thought it would. The new that you thought would deliver lasting satisfaction will not last. The time together as family, it's complicated. It won't be like a Hallmark special. And what Jesus is saying here is, listen, if you have the lenses of the gospel and doing things for the glory of Christ, you will be able to, in this life, see houses, see estates, see family, see brothers and sisters, see children the way God sees them. And so even with persecutions, you will be able to be satisfied. That's an inheritance. And that's why he says here that these things you will experience even with persecutions now in this time. You will experience them with a down payment of your inheritance in a way that the world can't experience them. And not only that, just be reminded that perspective is just a taste. Look at what it says at the end of verse 30. And in the age to come, eternal life. Just read Revelation 21 and 22 sometime. If that doesn't get you excited about life after this one, I don't know what will. And then he gives us one final phrase to just help guide us. And that is that gospel identity overrules horizontal identity, but many who are first in this life will be last, and many who are last in this life will be first. Gospel identity overrules horizontal identity.